I throw away. Normal thing to do. But this bracelet, obviously, I did it. It probably fell off about a year ago after about six years of wearing it. And I'm going to tell you what it actually is made out of this, this piece of trash. Yeah, piece of trash. What it is. Now, if I try to sell this, it really wouldn't get much. In fact, really nobody would want to buy it. But I wouldn't want to sell it either. In fact, if you offered me $10, I, I definitely wouldn't sell it. Well, that's like 700 rupees. If you offered me 5,000 rupees, I definitely wouldn't sell it. You offer me 10,000, I still wouldn't sell it. You offer me 25,000 rupees, I wouldn't sell it. And if you look at it, you say, there's no way that's worth 25,000 rupees. But to me, it's worth way more than that. And, and the thing about it is there's a story behind it, clearly, that I know that you don't know. You see, years ago, when I was a 19-year-old, I went to Cairo, Egypt, and I was studying abroad. And I was part of a semester that was going to be in Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, and Egypt. But the only reason I went on this semester was because back in the United States, when I looked at the brochure, I saw that one thing I was going to get to do was work with children at an orphanage. And so when I got to the, the place in Cairo, I told the professors, and the professors didn't necessarily like to hear this, but I said, I didn't really come for the academics. I came for the children. Now, they're like, well, you're doing the academics. I'm like, yeah, I know, but here's the thing. On the weekends, you guys are going to go explore the country and do tourist trips that have nothing to do with the school. Can I skip all the tourist trips and just do the classes? And can I spend my weekends at the orphanage working with these kids? So they gave me permission. So basically, I studied four days a week, and then three days a week, I got to be at this children's home. Well, the children's home was run by uh, quite a few nuns, um, started by Sisters of Charity, Mother Teresa's group. And so they had a lot of little kids from four years old all the way down to newborns. Well, when I got there, I was the only guy working at this home with a lot of nuns, like I said. And so they gave me the newborn babies. So I had six newborn babies to take care of, all two to six months old, uh, five girls, one boy. And my job was pretty simple. Not easy, but simple. It was to feed the babies, it was to burp them, it was to change their diapers and put them to bed. So I had six newborn babies to take care of as a 19-year-old guy. So I got very, very comfortable taking care of a lot of babies at once. That's why if I ever have to babysit one or two children, no problem. Is when I have like three to four newborns that starts to become a little bit more of a load. I, I mastered how to hold three at one time very comfortably, uh, rocking the other ones, I tell you. But here's the thing about those babies two of them, little girls, were identical twins. Their names, Marina and Jacqueline. Now, these girls were a huge blessing, and if, if you're a mother of many or a father of many, you'll know what I mean by this. They were a huge blessing because these two little girls were literally always happy. Now, if you've got six babies, it's nice if you've got two that are happy to wait till the end to be taken care of. And these two little girls, you didn't have to do much to make them smile. Really, you just look at them and they would just beat back at you. 
If you want to see a picture of them later, I've got their baby pictures in my Bible. Well, here's the thing. Day in and day out, I took care of these kids, and these little girls became like my children. One day, I got to the children's home, this orphanage, and my babies were there, but only four of them. Marina and Jacqueline, these beautiful little girls, they were no longer there. They were five months old now. This is March of 2004. I said to the sisters, I said, where are my babies, Marina and Jacqueline? They said, well, actually, those two little girls are not true orphans. They actually have a family in Cairo. And now they're strong enough to survive. So the family has taken them back home, and they're not going to come back anymore. So now I had my four babies, but I was, I was heartbroken. Because in all honesty, they were like my children. And so I used to do something after I put the four other babies down, the three girls and one boy, and I, after I put them down to bed, I would go by the empty crib of Marina and Jacqueline where they used to always sleep. And I would kneel by their empty crib, and I would pray for my little girls. I prayed a very simple prayer, two things. I said, God, please bring somebody in their life to love them. Love them. And you're in their lives to share the love of Jesus with them one day. And that's what I prayed every day. Well, finally, I came to May of 2004, and my semester had finished, and I had to go to the United States. So I went back to the USA, and on my dorm room wall in South Carolina, I, I took pictures of all my babies. And so I had this whole wall plastered with little babies. And uh, my, my guys, my guy friends would walk in my dorm room and be like, What's up with you? Like, I'm like, you know, my children. That didn't get any better, by the way. Uh, so, so, time went on. Two years later, I graduated from university in May of 2006. I was still praying for my kids, and I still pray for my six babies today. Well, I was moving to Lebanon one month after graduating because there was a school there that I was going to teach at and study Arabic for a couple of years. But before going there, I didn't want to waste my summer before teaching that fall, so I thought, ah, let's go ahead and go back to the Middle East right away and start studying Arabic. And since I had been to Cairo two years before, I decided I'll go back to Cairo because I've got friends there and I can study Arabic uh, and be sudden quite quickly. So I went to Cairo in June of 2006. We're now about 30 months after the story began. Well, I arrived in Cairo and bombs start falling on Cairo. <coughs> And, uh, no, 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 long story about Lebanon, and, and with a war between Hezbollah and Israel. And the long story short is the school I'm supposed to teach at in Lebanon shuts down completely, and I'm stranded in Cairo. So, I said, all right, well, my plans changed. God's did. I'll stay right where I'm at until he shows me the next step. And I started working in Cairo. I started working, like I said last night, with street kids. I started living um, in the slum community. I, uh, I, I was working at International Youth Coaching, swimming in a few things. I've been involving kids. And then God show me what you want. And meanwhile, I kept praying for my six little girls. Now, I got to say proper goodbyes to my other four, but Marin and Jacqueline, I was told I would never see them again. Now, you have to understand something about Cairo. I don't know how big Bangalore is. But Cairo has about 22 million residents. Um, that's a safe estimate. I can say 30 million, it would be correct as well. Depends on how many neighborhoods you want to count. So in a city of 22 million people, somewhere in here are my little girls. One day, in December of 2006, we are now almost three years into the story, 35 months into the story, I randomly, I have a free afternoon. 
I don't know what you think of as fun for a free afternoon as a 22 year old, but I thought, I want to go meet people. So, in a city of 22 million people, I randomly chose a neighborhood, and I decided I was going to start walking the streets and talking to people and make friends. That's what I did. And I'm just meeting random people talking on the streets. As I'm walking the streets, there was a door that opened over there, and there's a, a 10 year old girl that steps out, her name's Lofna. And she calls out to me from across the street. She says, Hey, est-ce que tu parles français? Tu speak French. Now that's interesting because it's not a French speaking country. And I am from a French speaking country. So I looked at her and I said, Yeah, in French, we're dialoguing in French. I said, Yeah, I speak French. Uh, like, tell me, why, why do you speak French? Long story short, she and a lot of kids in that neighborhood studied at a Franciscan sister school, which was taught all in French. So we became friends on the street. She said, Will you come meet my parents? So I'd love to meet your parents. We went inside their home, and this is in, uh, in this garbage community that I actually ended up living in later on. And, and I go into their home, and the parents are just excited uh, that, that their kid has met somebody who speaks French, and they said, Would you tutor our kids? I said, well, I'd be happy to. I've got a great opportunity to invest in the lives of kids. So I had about 15 children that came for tutoring every week, once or twice a week, and we did it in this home. And it was a totally gutted out room. It's very open, chickens flying over our heads, probably haunting. It's very, um, just, yeah, very uh, rural life in the city. Well, now we're in March of 2007. We're now 38 months after the story has begun. And one day, as I'm teaching these kids a French lesson, a couple of little girls wandered into the room. Now, I don't know if you've noticed something, because I have spoken about six times so far, so you've had a lot of chance to notice. But you probably noticed that I looked directly into your eyes a whole lot. I've looked into almost every set of your eyes, most of you, many, many, many times. There's a reason I look into your eyes and ask me later. But I've always been looking into people's eyes for a very specific reason. So when these two little girls walked into the room, toddlers, I looked at them, I looked into the eyes, and I stopped teaching French. I looked over, I looked at the 10 year old, and I said, Who are those two little girls? Knowing that there was something really familiar about their eyes. She said, I said, No. What are their names? She said, That one right there is Marina, and that one right there is Jacqueline. And I knew instantaneously, though I didn't tell the family instantaneously, that God had not only reunited me with my little girls in a country I never planned to go to again in my life, He had actually placed me inside their home with access anytime. And God had made me the answer to the prayer I prayed on my knees by their crib, that God would bring somebody in their life to love them, somebody in their life to share the love of Jesus with them. It wasn't until years later that these little girls found this bracelet somewhere near their home. And it was the first gift they ever gave me. So this is from my little girls. So how could I throw it away even though I can't wear it anymore? He still made the trip to India with me, even though clearly it's not going to do more. See, it's got a value to me that it doesn't have to anybody else, because when I look at it, I see the faces of two 
beautiful, almost 15-year-olds who today love Jesus and know that they're loved. And why do I share this story? I give you a lot of applications from it. One is be careful what you pray for because God probably will want you to be the answer to your own prayer. But that's not really the point right now. You see, Paul's going to start out this verse we're about to read with one phrase we want to focus on, and that one phrase we want to focus on is one thing I do. And when I think about value, I think that the value I see in that is not the value you see in this bracelet. And I have to wonder, when we think of the Lord Jesus Christ, I see one thing, you see another. I'm not saying I see something better, I'm just saying we see different things. But I'll tell you how we base what we see. We will see what we see when we see Christ determined by how much we desire to know Him. It's going to all come back to our pursuit of knowing Him. As we seek to know Christ, that one thing we do is going to be defined by the desire of our pursuit and by the application of that desire. And if that doesn't make sense, I think it will in just a few minutes. And so I want to ask each one of us the question as we begin. When we look at Christ, what is that pursuit worth to us? If I ask you right now, I'm going to ask you right now, and I want you to think about the answer in your life. If God, if God literally just came to you, or Paul even came to you and said, what is that one thing you do? Not, not what's the one thing you should do. What's the one thing you do? Most of us would be like, um, I have more than one thing. No, no, what's the one thing you do? What would you say? That's going to be the assessment of the greatest value in your life. What's the one thing you do? Just what's the one thing you do? For some of us, the one thing we do is we seek to please ourselves. For some of us, the one thing we do is we try to stay healthy. It, it goes over everything else. For us, some of us, the one thing we do is it's a relationship of life. That's the one thing we do. But I have to ask, like, what is that one thing? Because here's what we've got. We've got to realize this. There is a throne to your life. And whatever or whomever is on that throne will absolutely control everything else. It, it, it's just true. I know we don't like that principle, but it's very true. So I wonder, I wonder if for many of us, Christ is close to the throne, but he's not on the throne. And what I mean is we accommodate him as it's convenient, but we don't worship him regardless. You'll know, because as we talk about the will of God today, what we recognize is we recognize the fact that when Christ is on the throne of our life, it doesn't matter what he says to us. What matters is who said it to us. When Jonah was told, the word of the Lord came to Jonah saying, it doesn't matter what comes next. If it's the word of the Lord, then whatever comes next is just done because he's Lord. So let's go to the word of God. And let's investigate that one thing. Let's meditate on this one thing. And let's assess really what's valuable to us this evening. Philippians chapter 3, as always, 
and we'll read once again verses 7 through 14. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not after righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and to share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Father, as we go to your word once again, I'm asking that you open it up to our hearts. Prepare us to receive what you have for us, and may you be honored as we respond to your word accordingly, and as we worship you, through a life of obedience. We pray, Lord, that if I say anything that's not of you, that once again remove it from our minds. But what is from you, embedded on our hearts. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, narrow it here on verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Now, Paul is going to start another imagery right now. He already started it a bit in verse 12, but it's going to come out quite a bit more um, in verses 13 and 14. Throughout Paul's ministry, when he writes different letters, he compares uh, the Christian life to different uh, domains. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he uses uh, architecture. Architecture as an example, um, as, as, uh, as a picture of the Christian life. In Ephesians chapter 6, he uses the army, uh, the armor of God. I heard that one of you all had a skit today where you were um, incorporating that in there, the belt of truth. Uh, I heard it was quite a hit song. Um, that's another picture he gives. He also uses a picture of agriculture a couple times. Um, I believe that's in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, you've got uh, now, though, a totally other picture, and it's a picture of athleticism or athletics. Now, specifically, I don't know what sport he's doing. Many of us would say track and field. 
But I'm not positive that's actually it. I, I, it could definitely be chariot racing as well. And, um, and I think I'll mention that a little bit later on, the picture he's actually painting here. But either way, it's some form of a race that's happening. Now, the beautiful thing about this race is the race is not about beating anybody else. The race is about finishing painfully. I know what it's like to be finishing a race painfully. Um, here's Joe. I, I try to always encourage young people um, in just their endeavors in life. And there was this kid, I don't know, maybe maybe a 15, 16 year old, and they wanted to run a marathon. And so I encouraged them, I was like, yeah, run a marathon. And they're like, I don't have anybody to run with. I hate running, okay, I hate running. I swim, I'm a swimmer. So I was like, oh, don't run, I'll run with you. I don't run, but this is 42 kilometers, right? In case you guys don't know what marathon is. And, uh, and, and they're like, but I, I don't know if I can do it. I'm like, yeah, neither of us know if we can do it. Let's just do it. And so we ended up signing up for this, this marathon in Stockholm, Sweden. And uh, this is back in like May. The marathon is until the next May. And so I signed up for it. And January is the deadline. And I called the kid up. And I'm like, have you signed up? They're like, I haven't started training. I was like, I haven't run one, one kilometer either. Just sign up. They're like, I don't know if I can do it. I'm mean, just sign up and train later. Hey, they're like, I don't know. So the day passes and they don't sign up. So I signed up myself. <laughs> so I'm like, what do I do now? Like, I hate running. So four weeks before the marathon, I still haven't run a kilometer. Um, I, I'm in Colorado speaking somewhere. And I'm like, you know, if I'm going to run a marathon, I probably need shoes. As you can see, I'm not a fan of shoes. And so I go to this shoe store. And it's, it's called Colorado Running Store. That's what they do, just like running. And uh, I go in there and they're like, yeah, let's get you on a treadmill and see like what your what your style is. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna really show the right style. I don't know what style running is, but like, so I'm like really thinking about how my feet are landing and all this. And so they're like studying me, they got their, they got their iPads filming me and all this kind of stuff. And they're like, yeah, these new balance shoes are what you need. So I'm like, great, let's get them. I even got socks that said like right foot, left foot. It was really cool. So like, I'm like set. I go to check out, and the, the dude checking me out, he like, he, I mean, he makes Hudson look like really, really fat. Like this guy is skinny. I mean, like a pole, a pole, a pole, a pole. Like, and, uh, and, and he's like checking, checking me out the register. And so he says, it's like, what's going on? So that marathon. He says, yeah, you know, I've been running for years, and this, I think I've logged like 21,000 miles in my, in, my, in my running log book. So we're talking, you know, like whatever, 35,000 kilometers. He said, but I think this fall I might start running half marathons. I just don't want to move into anything too quickly. <laughs> I said, yeah, bro, you don't want to get into that. <laughs> He's like, well, what's your training program in life? I said, it's been a little unconventional, but it's been a <laughs> That's all I said to him. He's like, well, good luck. I was like, I'm gonna eat a little. And, and that's it. So it was done. That was it for our conversation. Two weeks before, I was actually on Hudson's Island. And I was like, you know, I'm running a marathon in two weeks. And I probably should at least like put my shoes on. So I put my shoes on. I decided to go for a little jog. I ran for like four kilometers or whatever. And that felt good. And I saw like going to the gym. So I like stopped. I'm like, oh, I'll just go to the gym instead. So I was like, I was confident. I had run four kilometers. I run four kilometers. You run 42. I mean, that was my theory, right? So, um, but when I got to the marathon, my whole, my whole um, program was just stretch out an hour the night before, stretch morning up, and then stretch after the marathon. 
And I remember getting to the starting line and uh, and just thinking, all right, my only goal, just one thing in mind, just go and finish. Don't stop until the finish line. Just go, go, go. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of pain involved. But 42 kilometers later, I did cross the finish line and I was still running. It did finish. It did work, and I wasn't very sore. I was sore for the next day, but after two days, I was fine. And then I retired from the sport of running. So now <laughs> I'm officially retired. That was my career. It was not an impressive time, but I was not. I was in the middle of time. It's okay. Now I say that because you'll remember the story, and I hope you remember the application. And the application is oftentimes we want to disqualify ourselves from the race that God put us in. We want to claim that we're not equipped. We want to claim that we're not prepared. We want to claim that we're not worthy to run. None of that has anything to do with it. The point is, you're in this race because God puts you in this race. You see, Paul says, not that I've already obtained, right? But why is he running? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Because Christ has put me in this race. That's why Paul's going to say at the end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, he's going to say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, and finally, verse 8, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but to all who have loved his appearing. So I want to encourage you that as we see what Paul's saying here, one thing in mind, that one thing is you're in a race, and that one thing is to finish the race, and what is that one thing? It's one thing is to know Jesus Christ. Okay, but let's break down this one thing. In Scripture, there's a few examples of one thing, and that will give us a bit of a clue to understanding this. Think through in your own mind. Alright, um, one example of one thing would be uh, the psalmist in Psalm 27, right? One thing I have desired and that will I see to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How about one thing in John chapter 9, the blind man. Remember what he said? He said, I don't know who he is. I don't know who this guy is, but one thing I know. I was blind, but now I see, right? Um, how about the rich young ruler? One thing you lack, one thing you lack, and what do you lack? Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me, and you'll have great reward in heaven. How about this? Luke chapter 10. Mary, Martha, and Martha desiring to, to serve, but then wanting everybody else to do what she's doing. Remember what Martha says is actually kind of fascinating. She says to Jesus, and by the way, Martha's doing a good work. She invited Jesus. If it wasn't for Martha, Mary wasn't sitting at the feet of Jesus. Okay, so she invited. So let's not be too harsh on Martha. But Martha goes to Jesus and says, Lord, do you not care that Mary has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. You know, it's not a good idea to call Jesus Lord and in the very next sentence tell him what to do. The same. If you're going to call him Lord, shut up and let him talk. But then what does Jesus say? One thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good part. See, she chose the pursuit of knowing him. In fact, it's interesting when you actually see that passage. You know what Jesus says to Martha? He says something to her before he says about Mary. He says, Martha, Martha. Oh, that's precious. Do you know why it's precious? It's the only woman in the whole Bible whose name is double. It's the only woman who has her name repeated. That's endearing, okay? That's not Jesus being bad. Like, Martha, Martha. Like, no, it's like, Martha, Martha. 
This is a sweet thing in all of history because Martha pursued Jesus, even if she didn't necessarily do it always in the right way. She got this endearing term from the lips of Jesus, Martha, Martha. And he says, you are anxious about many things. Why am I giving this illustration? Do you think I'm on a sidetrack? No, I'm not. This all has to do with Philippians 3. I'll tell you why. The word anxious there, marimus, however you want to pronounce it, because I don't speak Greek. The word there has this idea of being divided in mind. If somebody is anxious, I want you to think about this, because we probably struggle with anxiety frequently. When you're anxious, it means that your mind is on many things and it's divided in its thought. If it processes, that is the opposite of one thing is necessary. That's the opposite of one thing I do. You see, many of us, when we struggle in anxiety and worry and complaining, it's because we're focused on how is this going to work with this? And how are these elements going to play out in the future? And what if that happens to me? That's anxiety, a divided mind. But Jesus Christ leads us to having one solitary focus. And that is why what we talked about last night, and I'll repeat myself intentionally because I want it driven home. That is why we can rejoice regardless of our circumstances. That's why whether it's unemployment or whether it's cancer or whatever, it all allows us to know Jesus Christ more. When we're sick, we know him as our healer. When we're exhausted, we know him as our sustainer. When we're in need, we know him as our provider. You see, the very situations that cause anxiety are actually the very answer to our prayer. Mary has chosen a good thing, and that is a single mind. So when Paul comes and says, one thing I do, what he's really saying here is, I've got one mind. So the first thing I want you just to make note of, and don't worry, we've been on this point for a long time, but just for your notes, there's intentionality. There's intentionality. What do I mean by that? What I mean is, figure out, decide what's on the throne of your life. And then let everything be molded to that. And I pray it's going to be Jesus Christ. I pray it's going to be the pursuit of knowing Him. But you've got to decide. It's not just going to happen. We're not going to randomly be a church that's passionate for Jesus. But when we realize the value of Christ, we say, Christ, you alone deserve to reign in my life. Lord, reign in me. Reign in your power. In all my dreams, in my darkest hour, you are the Lord of all I am. So won't you reign in me again? You've got to make the decision, and will you do it? To say, Christ, you're on the throne, and now that you rule, I'm going to frame every area of my life around the truth that your word is in control, and things are going to have to go. Things are going to have to be placed in a new position in life, because everything's going to be channeled into that desire to know you more. Are you willing to have an undivided mind, undivided attention, focus on the goal, forget the things behind, and intentionally say, Christ Jesus is is my prize. You have to make the choice, and you will make the choice, but if you don't intentionally choose Christ, I guarantee you are intentionally choosing something else. Let me read you some thoughts of a couple of men of God.
that I found very convicting. By the way, if you, if you, if it somehow helps you process, I want you to know that tonight's message is the message for me. I'm not saying the other ones haven't been, but if you want to know where, as I'm studying this passage, preparing to be with you all, this is the one the Holy Spirit says, Nathan, you've got to do something with this in your life. I can be more specific, but you don't need, you don't need to just hear about what I'm supposed to do. Let's just hear what the Word of God says. Listen to what D.L. Moody, what he said. Give me a man who says, this one thing I do, and not those 50 men who dabble in many things. What D.L. Moody is saying, and that was, by the way, a great preacher of the word, what he's saying is, I would rather have one person who's undividedly focused on a pursuit of Christ than have 50 that are scattered in many things. I'm not saying that you don't do the job you do, but I am saying your job is subjected to the heart of Jesus Christ and what he wants. I'm not saying you don't take care of your family. You absolutely do. In fact, there's a mandate in Scripture to do so. But what I'm saying is Christ comes first, and what he wants for your family is what reigns in your household. You see, it doesn't mean your external life necessarily looks drastically different. It means everything you do in your external life will be done drastically different. Now, there's another one I want, to, I want to share with you, and I thought this one, too, really hits home. Another commentator said this, The world is full of people who are clever at much and successful at nothing because they cannot focus their life. They're clever at much, but they're successful at nothing because they cannot focus their life. I know that you're all gifted. You know why I know that? Because I know the Holy Spirit gives gifts to his children. I wonder sometimes if we know what our gifts are, if we take time to develop our gifts. I wonder what it would be like if you recognize the spiritual gifts God's given you and you say, man, I'm going to know Christ and I'm going to make sure I take those gifts and I'm going to steward those gifts with everything in me and I am going to cut things out so I can maximize the gift of the Holy Spirit that he's given me, maybe the gifts of the Holy Spirit he's given me, and I'm going to use them for his glory so I can bless the body and I can bring glory to his name. I'm telling you, we would see the power of Sunday life. But there's got to be a cost. Not just going to cost. And then intentionality must be chosen. So, we see this intentionality there. But there's, there's another aspect too. And, and I want to just touch on this because I think it's important that we understand what Paul is saying here. I, I'm going to use the word there's an ignorance. Now, ignorance is normally a negative word. Um, I can also use the word there's indifference, kind of like we talked about earlier today. But when I say there's an ignorance involved, notice what Paul says in the next phrase. One thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind. Paul is choosing, in a sense, to be ignorant or to be unknowing, if that's a gentler way of saying it, about certain things of the past. Now, we need to make sure that we don't misunderstand this because God tells us over and over and over, beginning way back in the book of Exodus, that we are not to forget the past. In fact, we're called to remember frequently. Tomorrow morning, 
What are we going to do? We're going to come in here. We're going to remember the Lord. We're going to remember his blood that was given for us. His body that was broken for us. He tells us to remember, remember, remember me. But what are we supposed to be forgetting? Well, I think we have to go back to Philippians 3 verses, uh, really, 3 through 6. 4 through 6. And what do we find? We find all the accolades that Paul had accumulated. We find all the credits to his name. We find all the things, get this, don't miss it. All the things that used to identify him. See, I gotta ask myself, and I need to ask you, where do you find your identity? Like, if somebody asks you, who are you? What would be your answer? Like, really, what makes up who you are? Once you know who you are, well, you're going to find out the things that are being slapped on his labels. What does Paul say? He says, I forget the things that lie behind. I forget the things that up until now have made my name. And when, when, when we look back and remember, what are we remembering? We're remembering the goodness of our God. We're remembering the character of our God. We're remembering the work of our God. We're not forgetting what was behind, but we're forgetting the identity that we used to bear. Now, think about it in this light. There are three things that would say are part of that identity we forget. Our sins, our successes, and our struggles. Now, our sins. Why would we say we forget our sins? Well, I think in some ways we need to learn from our sin. So maybe in that forgetting the things that lie behind, it's not like, oh man, like uh, I'm just not going to think about that anymore. Well, obviously there's lessons to be remembered from it, but what are we saying? That sin does not in any way identify me. Now this is freeing for some of us. Because some of us, when we move on, you know what the enemy says? He says, hey, don't forget who you are. You're the guy that, you know, you did that, and I can't mention it because we're in a church setting. That's what the enemy, in fact, there's an old song, very old song, I doubt maybe one or two of you have ever even sung it's an old hymn. And one of the lines from it says this, well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all, a thousand more. Jehovah knoweth none. See that? I'll say it one more time to you. Well may the accuser roar. Well may the devil say a lot of stuff. Well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all. A thousand more. Devil, you missed a lot. But Jehovah knoweth none. See, when you get to Micah chapter 7, you know what it says about my sin? It says my sin has been cast where? Into the depths of the sea. Now that's fascinating. Was the sea created before or after sin came into the world? Before. Exactly right. So the sea was in a perfectly good world. In Revelation, chapter 21, 22, in the description of the new heaven and the new earth, did you notice what's not allowed in there in the perfect world? There will be no more sea. It was in a perfect world. Nothing wrong with sea. There's no more sea. Because that is the very place where our sin was cast. Nothing to even remember my sin. The Lord Jesus paid it in full. 
doesn't belong to you, you can have that remembrance of eternity. You know, this is powerful. I'm not just forgiven. I'm blameless. I'm without guilt. See, I'm in the Middle East. One time I decided to accuse me of, of crazy stuff. And I, I, he's like, what did he accuse you of? He kept changing it. So I, I can tell you one thing, but then it was another thing later on. Finally, I started getting arrest warrants delivered to me at work. And so I'm coaching swimming, and, and these envelopes are coming from the police station. And it's an arrest warrant. Turn yourself in. And at first I thought it was like fake because it's like a photocopy. And I'm like, okay, this is weird. So I call my lawyer, and they're like, oh, yeah, it doesn't sound like a real. And I get another one. They're like, uh oh. They're like, if you get a third one, the police are coming after you and you'll be arrested. So they're like, you need to go turn yourself into the police. I'm like, what have I done? Like, we don't know. Maybe the police can tell you. So I, I knew who, who was behind all this. So I go to the police station. And you know, I'm in a foreign country. I'm in, uh, in an Islamic state. And I go to the police station and I bring my arrest warrants in and I go to the chief of police office and he says, um, he's like, what are you here for? I'm like, I don't know, but I think you like want to arrest me or something. So here's my papers. And he's like, why do we want you? I don't know. He's like, well, I don't know either, but let me look into the system and we'll try to find out. So he's like, do you want a cup of tea? And so we had tea together. And as in the back room, the guys were on the computer system looking me up. And then after about 20 minutes of having tea with this guy, they come back out, they pass a slip of paper to the chief of police. And uh, the chief of police looks at me. He says, David, not only are you not guilty of anything, he's like, there's nothing even on your account. Completely clear. Obviously, that was a relief on that day. How much more of a relief when I stand before Jesus Christ? I can forget those things that are behind. You know why? Because Christ Jesus paid not only for my sin, he paid for my shame. Now, that doesn't mean I live in sin. We talked about that in the guys group, right? Then shall I live in a country that I've left? A country of sin? By no means. Why would I go back to that? I don't want to live there. It doesn't mean that sin doesn't come across the path and I have to repent. We should live lives of repentance. But no, by no means, I've been given resurrection power to live my life. But at the same time, sin will never identify me again. Because I am in Christ. And in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, we say, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, it says that he will present us guiltless before the Father. Isn't that exciting? It doesn't get you excited. You might not be saved. So please come talk to me and get to know Jesus Christ. Because I don't know how you can't get excited about being presented guiltless before the Heavenly Father. That is absolutely beautiful. So we forget the things that are behind. Let me ask you, are you hanging on to something that you've done? Because if you are, you're not going to have one thing in mind. You're going to be trying to do a lot of reparations. You're not going to be able to wholeheartedly, freely follow after Jesus Christ. How about your successes? Are you holding on to something you've done in the past? And you said, oh, do you know who I am? I'm uh, the brother that loved that revival. And, you know, a thousand people came to know Christ. Or, uh, you know, I, I leave music in my church. Pretty good at it, too. Put a bit of sound in What's the point? When we hold on to our successes, we also are not going to do singly focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know in the Song of Solomon, 
What does it say is a characteristic of that bride? She has dove's eyes. Why a dove's eye? Because doves focus only on one thing at a time. See, that's the bride that the Lord Jesus wants. He doesn't want a bride that's focused on themselves and everything they've done. Like, oh, I'm such a great bride. Why did the Lord Jesus choose me? Not because I'm great. Certainly not because of some kind of beautiful person. He chose me because he loves me. So why would I focus on my sin that you paid for? Why would I focus on my success, which if it has any good in it, it's all because of him? And not just the sin, and not just the success, but also my struggles. I think oftentimes we can focus on the things that we're just, we keep failing at. We keep trying to focus on the Lord, and we keep getting our eyes distracted, and we can grow disillusioned and weary. And I just wonder, are any of you you? If you're weary in your journey of one thing you do, one thing you do, and you say, man, I just, I'm not, I just, I've been doing very well with that one thing. Let me remind you, the Lord is not exhausted with you. He loves you. You're his bride. And faithfully and patiently, he walks with you over and over. I want this weekend for the Calvary family to be a weekend where you get back up. A weekend where you realize the only one trying to hold you down is yourself, not the Lord. He wants you to get up and walk closely and intimately with him. That one thing you do, there's an intentionality, but there's got to be an ignorance. There's got to be a, a, an intentional choice to not focus on something else. Let the past be the past. Let it be in the rearview mirror. Don't forget what Christ has done, but the things of us, let it be past, and let's focus on Jesus Christ. I, I want to I leave you to something that John Newton said. Uh, if you remember musically, John Newton wrote probably one of the most famous songs in the entire church world, worldwide, Amazing Grace. And almost all of us know it, and maybe we'll even um, take time to, to sing the chorus here in a little while. But, but John Newton actually had a verse over his desk, and I want to read the verse for you. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 15. You can just listen, because I'm already there. So Deuteronomy 15, 15, here we go. It says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. Now, why did John Newton have that over his desk? He wanted to remember that he, even he was a slave trader, even he was involved in the slave industry, but God redeemed these slaves. He redeemed them to a new life. And what John Newton saw was that I could never forget who I was, because if I forget who I was, I forget who my Savior is. But just because I don't forget who I was does not mean I dwell on my sin. I don't dwell on my success. I don't dwell on my struggles, but I recognize my salvation. And when John Newton came to the end of his life, John Newton actually, he struggled somewhat with, um, with, with just his thoughts. I don't think all members, but he had some mental struggles. And at the end of John Newton's life, this is what he had to say. He said, two things I know. I know that I am a great sinner, and I know that Jesus Christ is a great Savior. 
He never forgot who he was, but he always put who he was in the light of who Jesus is. And that's why he wrote those words. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. That's not why I'm now. But now I'm found. I was blind. But now I see. So we have an ignorance. We have this intentional forgetting. And the final thing we're going to mention as we close out this message is this. There is an intensity. An intensity that's going to be mentioned here. What does Paul say? He says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Straining forward. You know, I've actually had, I've told you that there are some doctors that had um, concerns for me because of my eyes. But I've had other people concerned, actually, in, in California recently. I was at a conference, and, um, and when I preach, maybe, I don't know if it's happening right now, but when I preach, I have a couple nerves that, like, bulge a lot of times, okay? And it makes cardiologists really nervous. It's kind of fun. So, like, as I'm preaching, every cardiologist is like, oh, no. We had a pulmonary, that's done, you know what? It's coming up. Um, and so, like, I, I recently went to a cardiologist, and he's like, dude, you have your your veins, your heart's like a twenty year old, like who absolutely got the music really excited about you. So I'm like, that's cool. I can handle that, alright? But um, but but these bulging things is actually a picture of this verse. When it says I I uh is this straining forward, the idea is straining every nerve. Have you ever watched a runner finish a race? If you could actually see swimmers' faces, you would realize that theirs are the same. I mean, it's way better to work out than that. Keep saying that. Put it in there, all right? You wanted to do some real sports in the water. All right, but you strain every nerve. Your heart rate is up. Like, everything about it is intensity. You think of that picture when you think of your life in Christ and focusing on the goal, focusing on the prize, focusing on one thing I do. I'm going to give you a homework assignment. Now, I'm going to be graded. I liked your Philippians papers last night. <laughs> I did not find out how you did it. <laughs> but they did give you some deep questions. They were very kind. There were a couple of ones that were one I have to say. Ephesians chapter 1. Stop for a Here's your homework assignment. There's not a right and wrong. There is a there is a right and wrong answer, but there's not the same answer for everybody. I want you to take enough time by yourself to actually write down what is the one thing you are doing. Not the one thing you're gonna do. Not the one thing that you should do. What is the one thing that you currently do? We all have one thing. We all have something that's above everything else. It might involve Jesus, but is it really to know Jesus? If, if you had to just boil down your life completely, completely, what would it be? That's one part one, there's part two. Part two of the assignment. If to know Jesus Christ like Paul has, becomes the one thing that you say I'm going to do, which I pray it is for all of us, regardless of our age, regardless of our situation in life, we all can make that our goal. If that becomes your one thing, 
How is it going to rearrange other things in your life? How will your job serve that one thing? How will your free time serve that one thing? How will your relationship serve that one thing? How will your parenting serve that one thing? How will your marriage serve that one thing? How will your church life serve that one thing? How will your love for your community serve that one thing? How will your finances serve that one thing? How will your thought life serve that one thing? How will your confession serve that one thing? Everything. Just how will it serve? What's going to change? If you're serious about that one thing, I'll tell you, the first thing you'll be serious about is actually doing this assignment. Because you'll want to take time to avoid a loving mom. Don't worry, you will. It'll take more than one year. That's going to demand change. Amazing that a man like Paul, who did a lot, could say one thing right there. Because nothing else defined him. All that defined him was, I want to know Jesus. The power of his resurrection. And the fellowship of his son to become to become like even in his let's pray father i'm convicted and i know that this assignment is for me and it's not an assignment that i feel is just a busy thing where i, I want to know you but sometimes I wonder if my life says the same thing. If my actions follow up what my heart is crying out. And Lord, as I just see my precious sisters and my precious brothers here, my heart's jealous for them. Because when I look at them, I think of what you see. Your blood was shed to redeem each one for yourself and to make them kings and priests and to make them sons and daughters and to make them bride of Jesus Christ. And you're jealous that you get everything. So, Father, in your mercy that you have your way in our lives, in your mercy will you hijack us? Will you hijack every part of us? that we might be able to say even next year, one year from now, with no reservation, one thing I do. I haven't painted yet, but one thing I do, I press on for the goal of the upward call of God in Christ. This is my prayer. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.